strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please, have a seat. To my right, I'd like to introduce my valet, Wilkinson. He will be reading any directly quoted passages from the books we reference. Hello, pleased to meet you. As I've noted in past shows, uh, Wilkinson, uh, quite by chance, was gifted with a particularly mellifluous voice. And this, of course, is why I've chosen him for his duties. Now, as it turns out, I am not alone in this appreciation. As we gain listeners, others have begun to comment on his extraordinary vocal gifts. Now, an unfortunate aspect to all this is that when, as was the case with our last episode, he's called upon to read less frequently, uh, certain parties take note of this with undisguised disappointment. Uh, you can vouch for me on this, Wilkinson? Yes, there was a comment from a listener, but I don't think anyone wanted a problem out of it. Well, no, and I certainly welcome comments. No one is at fault here. Uh, having you read less last week seemed to me, if anything, like giving you something of a vacation, but every gift has its price, of course. I always enjoy doing these recordings, sir. It's not a burden, but having more time for other activities is always welcome. Well, success is a double-edged sword, and it seems you are in demand. I'm certainly prepared to read whatever you have. There is a quality to your voice, a, a sort of power. Did you ever sing? Not really. Certainly not professionally. As a singer, the power might have been an issue. You'd learn to control it. You'd have to. My mother liked when I saw Your mother didn't understand it. People struggle with their gifts. It's a fine line, a double-edged sword. Like I was saying, I think you have chosen a better path. There's safety in what you do. The quiet, repetitive tasks. Something in you warned you. That other life could have taken you down. No one should live in regret. I certainly don't. It's I've said too much. We should just do the show. People will be happy this way. Let's get on with it. Indeed. Episode 5, The Great God Pan. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer. Our topic for Bone and Sickle, as you likely know, is the intertwining of horror and folklore, often with a little cultural history thrown in. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. We'll be continuing our discussion of the figure of Pan in this episode. This time round, we'll look at a bit of Lovecraftian horror, the classic 
The Great God Pan by Arthur Macken, and along the way, touch a bit on werewolves and a number of cases of people worshipping, talking to, and citing Pan the last century or two. Oh, and we'll visit a curious contemporary cult that grows 42-pound cabbages for Pan. They'll help bring it all together. Bringing it all together was sort of their motto, and here's their anthem from 1973. Together we were called of, together we belong. So, along with Macken's The Great God Pan, there were other Edwardians writing about Pan. One was the Anglo-Irish writer Edward John Morton Drax Plunkett, the 18th Baron Dunsany. You may call him Lord Dunsany, the name under which he wrote. He is remembered as a creator of the high fantasy genre with works like his 1924 novel The King of Elfland's Daughter. Lovecraft credited Dunsany's fictional pantheon of gods and spirits as an inspiration for his own mythology of Cthulhu and friends. Dunsany wrote several stories about Pan, his best known being 1928's The Blessings of Pan, in which a small rural village reverts to the worship of the pagan deity, abandoning their church for dances round the stones of a nearby megalithic site, where their former vicar eventually offers up a bull in a bloody sunrise sacrifice. The whole strange episode begins when, for reasons unknown, an otherwise insignificant village boy decides to craft a set of pipes, pan pipes of course, from reeds he finds by the river. In a number of stories of the period, including the story of a panic by E.M. Forster, pan who traditionally would be depicted as an adult, is for some reason embodied by a young boy, appearing as a sort of more dangerous version of uh, J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan. In the short story, The Music on the Hill, by writer Hector Monroe, who wrote under the name Saki, S-A-K-I, uh, Pan is uh, a mysterious pipe-playing boy who's skulking about in the woods in a rural area where a newlywed couple has recently relocated. Uh, things accelerate when the wife wanders into an actual woodland altar to Pan and removes some grapes left as an offering, and the boy reappears at a critical moment at the gruesome climax of the story, actually. Now, normally I don't like to do spoilers on the show, but I thought we might have Wilkinson read the passage uh, just to give him a bit more voice in this episode, after all the uh, the unpleasantness. Uh, I really wasn't asking. I mean, if you don't want to give away the end. No, no, it's only fair, and people like to hear your voice. I won't stand in the way. Perhaps I could just read the first part to avoid spoiling. The wife gets killed. There's your spoiler. Now, do you want to tell him exactly how it happens? She sees the stag running through the woods, and hears the pipes, right? So, go... Go ahead. The pipe music shrilled suddenly around her, seeming to come. Actually, I should set up one more thing. Earlier in the story, she's heard the boy laughing at her from behind the trees. Go ahead. Uh, the pipe music shrilled suddenly around her, seeming to come from the bushes at her very feet. And at the same moment, the 
great beast slowed round and bore directly down upon her. In an instant, her pity for the hunted animal was changed to wild terror at her own danger. The huge antler spikes were within a few yards of her, and then, with a quick throb of joy, she saw that she was not alone. A human figure stood a few paces aside, knee-deep in the whortle bushes. Drive it off, she shrieked, but the figure made no answering movement. The antlers drove straight at her breast. The acrid smell of the hunted animal was in her nostrils, but her eyes were filled with the horror of something she saw other than her oncoming death, and in her ears rang the echo of a boy's laughter, golden and equivocal. What's more interesting is that this idea of this sort of literal pan worship continuing on into the Christian era is not strictly a matter of fiction. In the small Gloucestershire town of Painswick in southwest England, local chronicles mention the creation in the mid-1700s of an Arcadian retreat, they called it, which was known as Pan's Lodge. Uh, it was built by a member of the local gentry, one Benjamin Hyatt. In the gardens around this Gothic building was a commanding lead statue of Pan. It was situated over a cold plunge bath around which Hyatt and his cronies would frolic in imitation pagan revels with, uh, as the document of the period records, vulgar orange sellers, uh, females we might assume who might have been known to sell more than oranges. Uh, were that the end of it, we might assume this is little more than the 18th century equivalent of a toga party. But the intent seems to have been somewhat more serious. Uh, local historians also record that Hyatt had initiated the general populace into the celebration of Pan, saying that a statue of the god was carried annually from the churchyard to the woods just east of Painswick House, Hyatt's home. Along the way, they are said to have chanted the words, Highgates, Highgates. Since the ritual was perpetuated for nearly a century, long after Hyatt's death, the original sense of the chant seems to have been lost. It's been suggested that Highgates is simply a corruption of Hyatt, though more scholarly types have also suggested that this is, could have been a corruption of an ancient Greek phrase, namely Aigaitis, or goat lover. Well, perhaps. Certainly something odd was going on. In any case, though the custom seems to have fallen from practice in the 1830s, it was resurrected in the 1890s by Reverend W.H. Seddon, the local vicar and enthusiastic student of folklore. Seddon understood the custom as one that actually dated to the Roman period and even installed the statue of Pan at the church wall where the celebrants would gather for the procession. The celebration was actually fairly long-lived, continuing from 1890 to 1950, when church leadership finally decided that they'd had enough pagan frivolities and had the statue of Pan buried in a secret location in the churchyard. Now, this Reverend Seddon had also attributed ancient pagan origins to a couple other peculiar customs distinct to Painswick. One was the ritual of church clipping an annual tradition in which parishioners encircle the church while clasping hands. 
Now, there's no real agreement as to the origins or specific meaning of this custom, but since the word clipping is recognized as an old Saxon word for embrace, contemporary explanations generally don't trace the custom any further. But Sudden understood it as a vestige of Roman religion and believed he had found further evidence in an associated Painswick oddity, the local dish known as puppy dog pie which has long been served around the occasion of the church clipping ceremony. Today's puppy dog pie is nothing more than a plum pie with a tiny porcelain dog as the essential ingredient. There are many different theories for this, some suggesting that actual dog was once used in pie served to unwelcome newcomers to the village. Seddon, however, had another idea. He believed that these pies, as part of the Roman ceremony that evolved into church clipping, would have once contained the meat of actual dogs and were a vestige of an ancient dog and goat sacrifice once practiced by the Romans. Well, we've presumed Seddon to be misguided in seeing Hyatt's pan tradition as a continuance of an ancient rite, but let's give Seddon a chance, at least for fun. What if Hyatt didn't necessarily create his tradition from whole cloth? It may have been based on his readings in classical religion or perhaps Hyatt, like Seddon would later do in the 1830s, was resurrecting some long-dead local tradition of which some obscure record had been preserved. So, where would this sacrifice of goats and dogs originate? Well, actually it's a fairly well-known part of the Roman festival of Lupercalia. I'm guessing many or most listeners may know of this ancient holiday as one erroneously connected uh, to Valentine's Day as Lupercalia fell on February 15th. Unfortunately for Seddon, the contemporary church clippings in September. But it wouldn't be unheard of for a festival for reasons of mundane civic convenience to change dates along the way once the original meaning's lost, so let's just keep going with this. The festival of Lupercalia began with this sacrifice of dogs and goats and the blood from the slaughter was used to anoint the heads of a special priestly caste known as the Lupercii. Strips of goat hide were torn from the carcasses and used as whips by the Lupercii, who would run naked through the streets of Rome, chasing and striking females with the leather thongs. The activity was said to purify the city and the blows to bring fertility. Why the sacrifice of goats? Why goat hide? The center of the festival was the Lupercal, the cave of the she-wolf who had suckled Romulus and Remus, where a statue of Pan had been erected. The canine or wolf connection, as well as that of the goat, can be traced to the festival's origins in Greece, in Arcadia, where Pan presides. The particular manifestation of Pan involved here was called the Lycaea Pan, or Wolf Pan, or the Latin Lupercus, meaning he who wards off the wolf. As a god of the shepherds, the control of wolves would naturally be one of your duties. In any case, Lupercalia is understood to originate with this Arcadian festival, Lycaea, held on Mount Lycaon, or Wolf Mountain. The festival seems to have been some sort of nocturnal rite of passage for teenage males involving, if contemporary stories are to be trusted, human sacrifice, cannibalism, and the transformation of men into wolves. Central to this festival is some sort of reenactment of the myth of King Lycaon. 
Once again, we call on Wilkinson to read a description uh, from the 1894 volume, Myths and Myth Makers, Old Tales and Superstitions Interpreted by Comparative Mythology. It is related by Ovid that Lycaon, king of Arcadia, once invited Zeus to dinner and served up for him a dish of human flesh in order to test the god's omniscience. But the trick miserably failed, and the impious monarch received the punishment that his crime had merited. Enraged at this transgression, Zeus, with his thunderbolt, burns Lycaon's house and changes him into a hideous wolf, that he might henceforth feed upon the viands with which he had dared to pollute the table of the king of Olympus. The dish of human flesh, in some versions, is one of Lycaon's sons. In others, Lycaon was engaged in human sacrifice to Zeus, and the meat was that of a sacrificial victim, a child. Ovid provides a much more colorful description of the werewolf transformation, one that I'd like to have Wilkinson read as, Only Wilkinson can. Thank you, sir. Uh, sorry, you can edit that out. No, no, I think I speak for our audience when I say that. More Wilkinson they want, and more Wilkinson they shall have. Ovid. In vain, Lycaon attempted to speak, but from the very instant his jaws were bespluttered with foam, and he thirsted only for blood as he raged amongst flocks and panted for slaughter. His vesture was changed into hair, his limbs became crooked, a wolf. He retains yet a large trace of his old expression. Hoary he is as a four, his countenance rabid, his eyes glitter savagely still. The Picture of Fury. Lovely. Now, this transformation was henceforth reenacted in a strange ritual according to our previous volume, Myths and Mythmakers. Again, uh, here we have the voice of Wilkinson. From that time forth, according to Pliny, a noble Arcadian was each year on the festival of Zeus Lycaeus led to the margin of a certain lake. Hanging his clothes upon a tree, he then plunged into the water and became a wolf. For the space of nine years, he roamed about the adjacent woods, and then, if he had not tasted human flesh during all this time, he was allowed to swim back to the place where his clothes were hanging put them on, and returned to his natural form. It is further related of a certain Domenitus that, having once been present at a human sacrifice to Zeus Lycaeus, he ate of the flesh and was transformed into a wolf for a term of ten years. So it is through this myth of King Lycaon that our word lycanthropy for the transformation of man into wolf or werewolf comes. In some tales of Pan, we even see Pan when wakened from his nap. Incite panic by transforming the careless, noisy shepherds into wolves who will devour their own flocks, or transform the members of the flock into wolves that will devour the shepherd. In another story, Pan punishes the nymph Echo by causing his shepherds to act like wolves and tear her apart. This is a result of Echo's rejection of Pan's amorous advances and Pan's jealousy over Echo's musical ability. 
Pan, of course, is also a musician, but is a player of uh, panpipes, not gifted like Echo as a singer with such a lovely, rich voice. Wilkinson, here's another one I picked just for you to read. Uh, the scene from Daphnis and Chloe, I think it will resonate. I know I just told the story, but the language here and you reading it, I, I'd just like to hear it, and I, I think we all would. Pan was incensed against the maiden, being jealous of her singing and vexed that he could not enjoy her beauty. He inspired with frenzy the shepherds and goatherds, who, like dogs or wolves, tore the maiden to pieces and flung her limbs here and there, still quivering with song. Still quivering with song. Still quivering with song. Still quivering with song. God. Oh God! God! Oh Jesus Christ! Together we were called on, together we belong. So, if you've listened to an episode or two of this show, you'll realize that we have a certain fixation with a particular horror film that in fact plays out the possibility of the old pagan ways resurrected in a remote corner of Great Britain, namely... The Wicker Man. In the film, Christopher Lee, as Lord Summer Isle, explains how this pagan revival began. Then in 1868, my grandfather bought this barren island to change things. Eager to grow fruit on this barren island off the northern coast of Scotland, he will need help. The best way of accomplishing this, so it seemed to him, was to rouse the people from their apathy by giving them back their joyous old gods. And that as a result of this worship, the barren island would burgeon and bring forth fruit in great abundance. Turns out the plan was a success, if you don't mind keeping up your end of the deal by offering a human sacrifice now and again. Now, there is a strange real-world parallel to this plotline, one that will bring us back to Pan, of course. This story also just happens to be set in northern Scotland and revolves around a group that also happens to be reaching its fame around the same time the film was made. I'll play a bit of a segment produced in 1973, the release year for The Wicker Man, and in this clip... The group is described as... A community that is based on attunement with the higher spirit worlds and with flower power. Guided, they believe, by inner promptings, which were the explicit voice of God. Fintorn, which still exists, is a commune started by a couple by the name of Peter and Eileen Caddy, former hoteliers with an interest in alternative spirituality and absolutely no experience in farming. Like the islanders of Summer Isle, they confronted challenges. The soil was unbelievably barren, hardly soil at all, mainly just a reach of sterile, wind-blown sand. And yet it bloomed. Like the friendly pagans ruled by Lord Summer Isle, the caddies called upon the ancient spirits of nature. It seemed that because the caddies tended the garden with love and faith, these elementals, fairies, elves, and gnomes, in return poured fecundity into the garden, and the flowers and vegetables throve mightily. There was no rational explanation, it was claimed, for this extraordinary outburst of garden glory in such a place. There had to be a factor X, 
direct and conscious cooperation from the nature spirits, from nature herself. Claims were made at the time of colossal 42-pound cabbages raised on the farm. And Finhorn, which has grown to a community of between four and 500, retains today this reputation for extraordinary vegetables. And it's attracted a number of high-profile supporters, including Prince Philip and, predictably, fans like Shirley MacLaine. Mike Scott of the 80s and 90s Irish-Scottish band The Waterboys, a band which treated pagan themes from their inception, has a special devotion to Pan and Finhorn. Living there for several years, he has not only written several songs invoking Pan, but has mentioned in interviews actually having seen Pan in people's faces, literally. Some say the gods are just a myth. Scott is not alone in these personal encounters with the god. Particularly uh, noteworthy here would be the former actor by the name of Robert Olgavy Crowby. He went by the name Rock, R-O-C, those initials. Um, he became a fixture at Finhorn in the early days, uh, channeling extraterrestrials. Uh, they've sort of abandoned extraterrestrials since then. Uh, Saint Germain, ghosts, and uh, had a particular connection to Pan, who he would meet from time to time. Uh, here he describes his experience at uh, Edinburgh's Royal Botanical Gardens. Green elves three to four feet tall were walking in front of me, full of joy and delight, and little gnomes were running about almost under my feet. Pan was with me, very powerful on my left, as I walked on to the top of the heath garden towards the tree of life, and a long-haired youth was sitting on the ground near a border, sketching flowers. I couldn't very well embrace the trees, as I would have liked to have done, or even talk to them except mentally. Speaking of mental, uh, Pan spends a good deal of time in Rock's book complimenting the author for his cultivation of the unusual ability to see the spirit world, but also offers a warning. Pan looked at me with a twinkle. For of course you do not see us as part of the material world all the time. That would be too much. Your physical body could not take it. Well, now, this theme of the human being, unable to endure the immensity of the spirit world Pan represents, is in fact largely uh, the theme of Arthur Mackin's 1890 horror novel. The Great God so if you're not familiar with Arthur Mack, and I'd certainly recommend checking him out, particularly if you happen to already be a fan of Lovecraft. The Great God Pan, which takes its name from a refrain in an Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem, was highly influential not only to Lovecraft, but other writers in his circle, and in general to the genre variously identified as weird fiction or cosmic horror. The story is wonderfully atmospheric and decadent in a turn-of-the-century way. Uh, it's also rather fragmented. 
Uh, it begins amid the laboratory trappings of science fiction. A Dr. Raymond has invited our narrator, Clark, to witness an experiment. A bit of brain surgery designed, as it turns out, to induce in the subject a mystical experience, the ability to see the universal reality beyond the veil. After some rather elliptical but nonetheless ghastly descriptions of the procedure, the subject named Mary wakes up and... Her eyes shone with an awful light, looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face, and her hands stretched out as if to touch what was invisible, but in an instant the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed, she shook from head to foot, the soul seemed struggling, shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side and grinning vacantly. Yes, said the doctor, still quite cool. It is great pity. She is a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped. And after all, she has seen the great god Pan. After this experiment, Machen flashes forward to see Clark inquiring about mysterious activities of an orphan named Helen who has been attracting children of a Welsh village into the woods for twilight adventures from which they emerge half-naked and psychologically scarred if they emerge at all. The narrator Clark is then abandoned for another by the name of Villiers, who we see encountering an old school friend, now not only destitute, but, as he says, corrupted body and soul, by his wife. Clark reappears apparently on the trail of some nefarious deeds committed by this corrupt couple, and so it goes with Machen building the story from different perspectives, suicides here, questionable deaths there, Strange, if unlikely, coincidences thrown in, the occasional allusion to pagan antiquity, and constant allusions to dreadful, unnameable perversities, and all loosely connecting. The great god Pan himself, as a more literal being, uh, stays at the edges of the story. I don't want to give too much away. There are some grotesque lights along the way, like uh, this passage, Wilkinson. The blackened face... The hideous form upon the bed, changing and melting before your eyes from woman to man, from man to beast, and from beast to worse than beast. All the strange horror that you witness surprises me but little. Well, not a surprise to the character speaking, but a gratifying surprise for the reader. Lovecraft described Machen as one of the modern masters of horror, offering some of his highest praise for Pan. No one could begin to describe the cumulative suspense and ultimate horror with which every paragraph abounds. Machen's story was particularly influential on Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror, which in 1970 was made into a not particularly good or faithful movie. Um, one of the foundational stories in Lovecraft's uh, Cthulhu mythos, The Dunwich Horror, was uh, very much an homage to the great god Pan. 
the story even mentions uh, the Greek god Pan by name uh, when one of the characters uh, uses it as an example of the extreme and ghastly intermingling of the human and the supernatural, the ancient gods in this case. Even if you're not a Lovecraft fan, if you can't get past his overstuffed and stuffy language or his 19th century politics and don't really care what he thought of the book, other more contemporary writers have also highly praised it. Uh, Stephen King has called it One of the best horror stories ever written. Maybe the best in the English language. Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and Arthur C. Clarke have also praised the story. But it was not always so. And... Admittedly, the story might not be for everyone. Um, upon its publication, it was roundly reviled. Richard Stoddard of the magazine Literary News wrote that it was too morbid to be the production of a healthy mind. And the critic Harry Quilter in the Contemporary Review wrote that it was a perfectly abominable story. Adding, Why should Mackin be allowed, for the sake of a few miserable pounds, to cast into our midst these monstrous creations of his diseased brain? Only the best for Bone and Sickle listeners. Now, Harry Coulter's distaste aside, I suspect that more than a few of you, since you enjoy this podcast after all, may indeed enjoy the creations of diseased brains and enjoy reading. The great God Wild and wavy, zappy, zonky, ziggy are the only words I know of to explain. You've been listening to Bone and Sickle with me, your host, Al Reitenauer. I do hope everyone's been enjoying the show and will continue listening. Uh, shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. You can find listings for upcoming episodes through June on our website, boneandsickle.com, all one word and no ampersand. Um, along with show notes and images and video of the topics I mentioned in the episode. Though most music used in this podcast is original, if we use more than a handful of notes of anything else, you can be sure to find the source linked on our site. For instance, a link to the song we just closed with, The Great God Pan, from the offbeat 1967 documentary about Los Angeles, Mondo Hollywood. Nothing to do with horror or folklore, but highly recommended. We also have a Patreon link where you can donate to support this rather laborious undertaking. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, um, our soundtracks, uh, book downloads, a signed glamour shot of our friend Wilkinson, suitable for framing, and uh, other things. A heartfelt thanks to our very generous recent donors, Jonathan Reel, Edie Ishii, and Eric S. Parakeet. We'd also like to thank some people for having left online reviews, including Lauren Church, uh, Tamara Rotino, Angela Garber, and Bob Bugs. Those reviews really help uh, boost the podcast's visibility tremendously, so we'd love it if anyone out there uh, who is enjoying the show might uh, leave their comments or ratings on uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen. I would love to get your comments on anything you liked, questions you had, uh, suggestions for topics, anything like that. And you can contact us via our website, Facebook, or Twitter. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. 
Thanks so much for listening.